0: You're listening to the Homelessness Services Association podcast. This is an audio-only version of one of our webinars addressing the challenges of frontline and shelter work during the coronavirus crisis. If you'd like to view the video or look at the slides, please go to hsa-bc.ca. Well, good morning, and welcome to HSABC's webinar, Harm Reduction, Part 2, Everyday Applications and Opportunities. I'm your host, Sarah Kift, and just a little bit about me, I've worked in the frontline nonprofit sector for over 15 years, including in Vancouver's Downtown Eastside at Carnegie Community Centre. I develop and host webinars for HSABC, as well as instruct Mental Health First Aid and produce podcasts for mental health organizations here in Vancouver. So, when you use the question section, that's me who you'll be chatting to, and I'll do my best to share your questions and comments with Corey, our amazing instructor today, as they come up. It's a stressful time for so many of us, as well as those we provide services to. So I want to say thank you for taking the time to join us today. And hopefully the content we provide will help you to lead well with courage in the midst of this crisis. As Corey and I both know, the situation is constantly changing and we really welcome your input as we discuss things today, as well as your stories, ideas, and questions. Um, Okay, so I'm just gonna run a quick poll here, and this is just a way for us to know who's on the line with us today. Um, So tell me what your role is in your organization. Are you frontline? caseworker, manager, supervisor, support staff, or other. And if you chose other, uh, just type that into the question section. And I say this every week, but having worked in nonprofit uh, nonprofit frontline work for a long time, sometimes we're all of the above, right? Simultaneously. Um, and sometimes our job descriptions don't really say anything about what we actually do. Um, so just choose the one that best fits what you're doing right now or the thing that you're doing the most of. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. Love, Lovely to see all the frontline workers on the line. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to be here. I know sometimes it's hard to get training in when you're so needed um, and maybe there aren't enough staffing resources here. Essential. Same with caseworkers and counsellors. Nice to see you on the line as well as our amazing managers and supervisors and our support staff who do so much work behind the scenes. I'm so glad that you're all here. All right. Well, here's Corey. He's your instructor for today. We're glad to have him back. Um, He's a busy, busy guy. (laughs) So we're very thankful for the time that he gives to HSABC. Um, he started his nursing career facilitating a bloodborne pathogens program in the Edmonton downtown core and since that time he has worked on the harm reduction team in downtown Calgary. He's implemented and coordinated HIV programming in rural Alberta as well as the take-home naloxone project and supervised consumption services in Medicine Hat. Corey is highly driven and passionate about ethical and evidence-based approaches to public health problems. He has a wealth of experience in both formal and informal education, having acted as the instructor coordinator for the practical nursing program at Medicine Hat College. And most recently, he moved to Vancouver Island and has taken on the role of project manager for the Provincial Peer Training Curriculum Project with the government of British Columbia. But that's only one of his many jobs. He has also spent the last two, three months in the front lines in homelessness encampments in Victoria, as well as being a passionate and effective advocate for safe supply and a humane approach to harm reduction in the midst of this crisis. Corey, great to see you or hear you. (laughs) Welcome back. Thank you
1: so much for having me. Yeah, I'm uh, really grateful to be here. I'm really grateful for these opportunities to connect with people and to provide education and, and just to provide a safe space for people to be able to problem solve and and. Maybe sometimes it's just about venting or or getting things off your chest during these challenging times, but I'm really happy to see you all here today and and really grateful to HSAPC for giving me this opportunity. Well, thank you everyone. And that was a fantastic introduction um, provided by Sarah. Um, I don't think anything further needs to be said uh, when it comes to uh, the work that's going on. Um, So I'm just gonna jump right into it because we have a lot to talk about today. Of course, before we get started today, I would like to recognize that colonization and the institutional oppressors that continue to permeate in our society have dramatically impacted Indigenous people who call this land home. The host of disproportionate impacts towards Indigenous people are far-reaching and they span generations. There is a link between colonization, um, which is fundamentally a process of violence and disconnection that operates at multiple levels, and the topics that we're here to discuss today namely the war on people who use drugs and the disproportionate impacts of criminalization, the overdose crisis, hepatitis C, HIV AIDS on indigenous people as an ongoing impact of colonization. I can't believe that this is still the same year, but back in February, um, I helped lead a die-in at the Alberta legislature to support supervised consumption services. And during that time, I had an opportunity to um, work with Indigenous partners from the Indian Residential School Survivor Team from the Boyle Street Co-op. And the person that came up there spoke so brilliantly and they tied in the connections with the current overdose crisis with colonization. And it still rings true today. We continue to see disproportionate impact on people who are Indigenous in our country, in Canada, and that's because we haven't done enough to change things. Now. A land acknowledgement is not enough, not even remotely when it comes to eliminating structural and historical barriers erected through colonization, but it is a small step in committing to a relationship of humility and collaboration. It is with that spirit today that I acknowledge with respect the Lekwungen people on whose traditional territory I stand on today and the Songhees, Esquimalt and Wissanish peoples whose historical relationship with the land continue today. It's really important when we talk about harm reduction that we acknowledge the fact that um, a great deal of innovation and progress has been made off the backs of people with lived and living experience. This presentation is made possible by people with lived and living experience of drug use by sharing their knowledge and experience with educators like myself. Without their generosity, this presentation wouldn't be possible. In fact, without without their generosity, um, things like take home naloxone projects and supervised consumption services and overdose prevention services, even needle exchange programs without their generosity and their ability to take on risk, we would never see that kind of innovation happening. And so I really want to acknowledge that people with lived and living experience have really guided myself in my career and we should always be looking to them in order to guide the practices that we do every day in our work. We will be talking about topics today that revolve around trauma, stigma, drug use, overdose, HIV, hepatitis C, and many more things. Um, If you attended last week's session, you would know that these topics can be very heavy and they can elicit a lot of emotions. And that's because a lot of us come to harm reduction. We come to the work that we do out of personal experience, out of some reason that brought us to this line of work. To many, these topics can be triggering. They might also be as fresh um, as this year alone because we've seen a lot of harm and we've lost a lot of amazing people to the collateral damage of COVID-19. Right now, we are about to start check week. Today is the first day of of check week and it's brought me some anxiety um, and I don't traditionally feel that kind of stress from, from a date, but last month, what happened was um, people died. We found people deceased in tents. Uh, We dealt with countless overdoses and things are only getting worse. The BC government has just released their statistics for overdose deaths in British Columbia for April. And as I predicted a few weeks ago, they are worse than Marches. This is the first time in two years that we have had back-to-back months with more than a hundred deaths related to overdose. That truly comes from a whole mix of factors, including the ongoing war on drugs, but also what I've said before is the collateral impacts of COVID-19. COVID has forced us to self-isolate, it's forced us to quarantine, it's forced us to distance ourselves and disrupt our services. And what that's done is it's left people in the dark. It's left people alone with their risks and, and things are only gonna get worse before they get better unless we start to implement true and meaningful change. Our plan today is to briefly recap the principles of harm reduction and then talk about the many ways in which harm reduction is implemented. We'll then move on to a little bit beyond that and focus on the how. More so, what is it that makes harm reduction so effective in improving the health and well-being of marginalized populations? Lastly, we'll look towards emerging practices and the future of advocacy. Throughout this presentation, I'm gonna reference a whole bunch of handouts. We have them available to you today in the handout section of this webinar, as Sarah mentioned. All of the past and present handouts are also on the HSABC website uh, listed under the resource section, and we're continuing to commit to being iterative in our approach. If you want something new, if you notice a gap in resources, let us know. Some of these I make myself, others have come from the hard work of peers, and it's vital we acknowledge their tremendous role in all things related to harm reduction. Now, a little bit about me, I am the the guy that ruins most conversations at a party. This is my life. And, And we talked about this last week's webinar that I am deeply and personally connected to a lot of the issues that we talk about today. We don't need to rehash those and go through those personal experiences again, but I encourage you all to be that person too. Make sure that every opportunity you get, if you hear something that's wrong, if you hear something stigmatizing, be that person who disturbs all casual small talk with disturbing facts that no one asked for. So because we're basing this presentation as a two part series, I want to make sure that I do a thorough recap of what we talked about last time, because many of you may not have been there. One of the core Uh, pieces that we discussed uh, in last week's webinar was the principles of harm reduction, and these principles act as the underpinning philosophy for all care that we do when working in harm reduction. The first principle is that drug use is a human behavior that many people across the world are unwilling or unable to stop. In fact, people have been using mood-altering substances for thousands of years, and this likely will never change. In the past, we as a society have attempted to prohibit substances and have been able to see the negative implications almost immediately. When the United States prohibited alcohol, what we saw was a rise in gang-related crime and eventually a toxic supply of wood grain alcohol that caused significant harms. That was quickly rescinded because people realized that no matter how much criminalization they put in the face of alcohol consumption, people were always going to consume that drug. The second principle is people who use drugs do not lose their rights due to their drug use. Every one of us are entitled to the rights of life and the highest attainable standard of health, social supports, privacy, freedom from arbitrary detention and degrading treatment and others. Treating people who use drugs, their families and their communities with dignity and compassion honors their human rights. The third principle is that people use drugs for many different reasons and in many different ways. Last week, we explored the various reasons why someone would use substances, and it's not nearly as clear-cut as mainstream media would have us believe. We equate any substance use as problematic or addictive, but the truth is that many people experience benefits because of their substance use. Sometimes, people use drugs simply because they enjoy them. When we talk about addiction, it's important to differentiate addiction from physical dependence and simply just recreational use. When someone experiences an addiction, it's because they continue to use a substance despite negative health and social complications related to that substance use. A physical dependence is what happens when you stop using a drug and you experience withdrawal. The two are not the same. Substance use itself occurs on a spectrum and people move along that spectrum depending on a myriad of forces in their lives. The fourth principle is that harm reduction is evidence-based. Harm reduction policies and practices are informed by a robust body of evidence that show these interventions have strong positive impacts on individual and community health. We will explore these benefits with this week's webinar. The fifth principle is that harm reduction is committed to meeting people where they are at without judgment, without the use of stigmatizing language that perpetuates harmful stereotypes and creates barriers to health. Harm reduction is concerned about quality of life for everyone, not necessarily telling someone that they need to stop using their drugs. The sixth principle is that options for prevention, care and treatment must be evidence-based, high quality and non-coercive. And we really have to stress that final point. It is difficult for people to even see the coercion within their own policies, the restrictive nature of programs and the paternalism that exists. In homeless encampments, people were being offered small amounts of money to move their tents. Then when they moved, fences would be erected to prevent more tents from cropping up. This is coercion and a way in which people use their power, which in this case is money, to forcibly change behavior. The seventh principle is that people who use drugs must be involved in designing, implementing, and evaluating programs and policies that serve them. I can't tell you the number of times that a new program has been implemented Um, within a a service that I work or nearby or affecting clients that I work with. And when we hear about it, we just think, like, how is this even going to work? And that's because quite often people who are making these policy changes, people who are implementing new programs, are doing nothing to ask people who are actually impacted by those programs if this is going to work for you. The 8th principle is that harm reduction is rooted in a commitment to social justice and addressing the inequities that exclude people who use drugs from the supports they need due to gender identity, sex-based discrimination, economic status, colonization, racism, stigma, trauma, and any other social oppressions. And lastly, the ninth principle is that harm reduction challenges policies and practices that cause harm. Many policies and practices intentionally or unintentionally create or exacerbate risks and harms for people who use drugs, including the criminalization of drug use, discrimination, abusive and corrupt policing practices, restrictive and punitive laws and policies, the denial of life-saving medical care and harm reduction services, and social inequities. Harm reduction challenges these laws, policies, and practices that continue to contribute to harms. We also talked a lot about the values that underpin these principles. Values like empathy, values like compassion, ethics, advocacy. All of these values exist within these principles. And as we move throughout today's presentation, I want you to be mindful of that and ask yourself, what principle is demonstrated in this harm reduction service? What values underpin that principle? It's only until we acknowledge that harm reduction comes from an individualized change first that we really start to see their benefits. Harm reduction accepts and recognizes that these risks that people take continue to occur and that risk is a normal part of human life. Every single day we take a risk and risk taking occurs on a continuum from low risk to high risk. When you get in your car to drive to work, you take a risk because you might get struck by another vehicle. Someone might jump out in front of you. A deer might cross the road. And we know that these things happen. So what do we do to mitigate that risk? We wear a seatbelt. We make sure that our kids are in proper regulated car seats that are approved. We accept that a risk exists, that we're going to continue to do this thing and that we're gonna do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe during that process. So rather than condemning those engaging in risk-taking behavior, harm reduction seeks to mitigate the harms associated with that specific behavior. Essentially, risk-taking is something that can happen anywhere. And so we see harm reduction apply to more than just sex and drugs and overdose. We see harm reduction apply to everyday life. And that's really what we need to focus on is that harm reduction is not exclusive to a small cohort of people or services, but something that we should be operating with at all times. We could go one way or the other when we talk about harm reduction. And option one is to ask people to stop their behavior and abstain. But what happens when that happens? Well, if a person goes to treatment and they don't actually want to go, essentially what's happened is that their tolerance drops from the substance that they use. They're put back out onto the street or they're put back out into the regular social environment without any support, and they go back to using. Unfortunately, because their tolerance has dropped, their risk for overdose is tremendously higher. And so we see a high correlation with people who are recently discharged from hospital, people who are recently discharged from treatment, and people who are recently discharged from prison overdose and pass away shortly after those events. And that's because forcing abstinence and treating abstinence is the only marker for success in punishing people who use drugs is ineffective and it's unethical. Option two, means maybe we can make it safer for people. Maybe we can help focus on the needs that are important to them. Maybe they're injecting methamphetamines, but that's not a concern for them. Maybe they're more interested in getting access to housing. Maybe they're more interested in HIV and hep C testing. Maybe they just want someone to talk to. If we can meet those needs first, then it gets easier to establish trust and it gets easier to support people and meet them actually where they're at. We can't talk about harm reduction without talking about supervised consumption services. Supervised consumption services are a compassionate, comprehensive, and collaborative form of evidence-based care. And they provide options when people are ready for change, only if they're ready for change. Later, we'll look at what these services actually look like in various locations. But there's a few notes about supervised consumption services. Anytime we talk about any harm reduction service, whether it's overdose prevention sites and SCS or it's take home naloxone or it's safe supply, it's important to know that they are only one part of the opioid overdose response. I hear people talk about this all the time. Oh, well, this is the silver bullet for treating overdose. Well, there's a couple of things that's problematic in that statement. First, people who use drugs are not werewolves. Silver bullets are just a really bad analogy when talking about a crisis that impacts people so deeply. The second is that there's no one size fits all approach to support people. We need a continuum of services that support people depending on where they are at and what they want to do with their lives. If their, you know, sole concern is not overdosing and dying, then supervised consumption services is an entry point so that they can meet those needs and start to focus on other things. Harm reduction is about finding people's priorities, being person-centered and helping get them to the next step wherever that might be for them. Supervised consumption services were actually implemented not because of the overdose crisis, but because of the rising HIV AIDS epidemic in Vancouver and the downtown east side. People quite often only equate supervised consumption services to overdose, but their actual intended purpose was to prevent HIV infection. And they are astoundingly effective in doing so. It is said that the cost of treating HIV over a lifetime is $1.3 million, but the cost of handing out one clean needle for someone is less than 10 cents. So what are the impacts of supervised consumption services? Well, the impacts occur on a multitude of levels, like most things related to harm reduction. First is the individual. The most important thing to me is the benefits to the individual. And first and foremost, they are effective at reducing overdose and overdose-related death. They're also effective in preventing disease transmission, HIV and hepatitis C, as well as other infections that can lead to sepsis and abscesses. They also act as a point of care that can help bridge people into other services. And it's said that people who access supervised consumption services are actually 30 to 35% more likely to go into treatment. And that's because there's no judgment and you have a recurring relationship with people and they can actually remove their guard and talk about what is important to them in those environments. The next level of benefits is to the community. And supervised consumption services have been shown to decrease public disorder. They've been shown to decrease public injection drug use, and they've been known to decrease uh, publicly discarded needles and other drug-related paraphernalia. Lastly, they benefit the entire health and social service sector. And what that means is that there's a less burden on health services. People who access consumption services are less likely to need an ambulance related to overdose. They're less likely to show up at the emergency department. They're less likely to require intubation at the ICU because they get timely intervention and they don't get to that point. And so then we see a whole host of benefits ranging from reduced wait times in emergency departments to less cost on the healthcare system. Like I said, harm reduction is in essence cost effective and that's why it's so challenging sometimes speaking to people about harm reduction because they want to talk about where my tax dollars are going but they don't want to acknowledge what a long-term investment actually looks like. If you were to look at the cost of a harm reduction service to start it up you would say well how come we have to pay for this? How come people have to pay money to set up these services? But in reality every dollar that's spent on a supervised consumption site will save the healthcare system five dollars. Now let's think about that for a minute. When I worked in Medicine Hat implementing supervised consumption services, we talked about this with people because we were in a very fiscally conservative neighborhood. And so I actually would break down the numbers for people. In that year, we had 390 visits to the local hospital related to overdose. So we broke that down. Every single ambulance trip cost $800. Every single presentation to the emergency department cost $1,500 on the healthcare system. If someone was admitted to the acute care unit, that would be an additional $2,300 per night. If someone required intubation because they had a hard overdose and their heart stopped, then it would be $20,000 a night in the ICU. And so if you talk to people and they say, I can't believe we're spending our money on this, remind them that investing in people's health and well-being pays dividends in the long run. There are many faces to harm reduction. And what does harm reduction actually look like and how is it employed? Well, it could be safer sex supply distribution. It could be harm reduction supply distribution like sterile needles, ties, swabs, cookers. It could be testing and treatment of STIs and bloodborne pathogens. It could be naloxone distribution and overdose education. But it can also be car seats and seat belts. It can be check stops for designated driver programs. It could be sunscreen. It could be the use of the HPV vaccine to prevent cervical cancer. It could be supervised consumption services, or it could be a managed alcohol program. It could be safety planning in the instance of domestic violence. It could be safer piercing kits. It could be drug checking and services, or it could just be fact-based drug and sex education. I remember being young and being in middle school and having the D.A.R.E. program show up and talk to me. And they would speak to us about the dangers and the perils of drug use. And they would sit there and they would implement all of these really strong scare tactics to these young people. If you do drugs, you'll die. This is your brain on drugs. This is what happens. This is what people who use meth look like. Really stigmatizing and misinformed images. But did that work? Was that effective? my age category is age 30 to 39. And in Canada, people age 30 to 39, their main cause of death, their number one cause of death in our country is overdose. So clearly scare tactics, clearly just say no policies and the war on drugs have been wholly ineffective. We really need to shift the way that we look at things. So that's a lot to consider. And I wanna make sure that we always provide opportunities for pause. I wanna make sure that we always provide opportunities for reflection. And so I'm gonna read these questions and I want everyone just to take a small moment to think about that and to reflect on their own practice, whether it be personal practice or the institutional practices at your place of work. What are the obstacles to harm reduction practice in your work? Are they policies? Are they an unwillingness to um, acknowledge the benefits of it? Are there specific protocols that oppress people and potentially create harms? How might harm reduction be further incorporated into your work? This is a really important question because even when you think you're working for an institution or an organization that is really forward thinking, that is really progressive, It's when we rest on our laurels and become complacent that we miss the really big pieces. I had an opportunity to um, review some new materials that are coming out um, from Pivot Legal Society. And one of them is called the stigma audit tool. And I'm told it's not ready yet. If it was, I would definitely have seen if I could provide it all to you today. But the stigma audit tool is amazing because what it does is it allows you to actually audit your own policies and procedures to see if there is stigmatizing practices embedded within it. It's a regulated and evidence-based way of reflecting on your own practice so that you can continue to commit to improvement. Lastly, how do you practice harm reduction in your workplace? Now, if some of you are... Out of the front line, you might think that you can't do that anymore, but that's wrong. Almost everywhere you go, no matter what you do, you can apply a harm reduction approach to it. And that's what I'm hoping that we'll all be able to take away from today, among many other things. In 2016, the Yes 2 SCS campaign in Victoria developed this harm reduction framework to illustrate the spectrum of harm reduction strategies that are a part of a social movement guided by harm reduction philosophy. You can see how the meaningful inclusion of people who use drugs, ending criminalization, drug user liberation and social justice are all tied into the everyday practices of providing harm reduction supplies and supports. So how do we take the value-based principles of harm reduction and put them into practice? Depending on where you work, you may be supported more or less by the policies of your agency, the support of your supervisors and the solidarity from your coworkers. You may work in a setting where harm reduction is well understood and forms the foundation of your work at all levels. But you may also work somewhere that distributes harm reduction supplies but doesn't really get into harm reduction beyond that. or You might work in a setting where abstinence is required of service users and harm reduction is not at all part of the working culture or it's viewed as a separate piece. That's one of the things that always challenges me is that when we believe that harm reduction is its own separate entity, this own bubble that exists and we can go into the bubble and we can do something harm reduction and then we can leave the bubble and go back to our regular activities. But in reality, all of the activities you do be underpinned by an approach of harm reduction. Regardless of the setting that you work in, there are ways that you can practice from a place of harm reduction in your interactions with other people. And linking harm reduction principles to your own values might also be a way to introduce the concepts in a more accessible way to your coworkers and managers. Some other ways of putting harm reduction into practice is to avoid the use of labels. Separate the individual from the behavior. In nursing, there's this horrible trend where we consistently refer to people by their diagnosis. And there's been a lot of work in order to take that away. I remember countless times early in my nursing career, hearing people say the diabetic in room 202, the COPD in room 203. But we were able to acknowledge that people are more than their diagnosis and we're able to put people first. The person with diabetes, Susan. You know, making sure that we're always reminding people that they are human beings first, and they have much more to them than their diagnosis or the behaviors that we see. Instead of labeling individuals as users or addicts, recognize that they're human first and foremost. Labels like non-compliant, drug-seeking, and frequent flyer have to be eliminated to establish and maintain trust. Without trust, individuals disengage from the healthcare system. Part of harm reduction is operating under an anti-oppressive lens. And what that means in the broadest sense is that not only are we mindful of our words and our approach, but we're also striving to eliminate structural and institutional barriers that create harms. This includes equitable access to care, ending socioeconomic disparity, and creating a level playing field for people not just to survive in but to thrive The work that's happened recently in Vancouver and Victoria to provide temporary shelter access to people who are homeless encampments was not done through an anti-oppressive lens. But how can you say that, Corey? Isn't it good that people get into hotels? Of course it is. But it's also about how we get there. First, not everyone had access, both in Victoria and in Vancouver abroad. It is said by Pivot Legal Society that there are around 7,000 people who are homeless in our province. Yet, for some reason, we focused exclusively on the encampments in Oppenheimer, Topaz, and Pandora. What does that actually mean to people? Well, it means that those were the encampments that were in the public limelight. Those were the ones that were drawing the most public eye and creating bad press and potentially changing votes. So those were the ones that got priority. In Victoria alone, the most recent point-in-care testing showed that there was about 1,500 people who were homeless. Half of them are unsheltered, but we only managed to get 344 supported. So why are we saying mission accomplished? Most of the time, it's because these things are being framed as an issue of public safety. And we saw that because a provincial safety order was issued, not a public health order to get people housed, but a public safety order to get people decamped. And what that meant is it came alongside arrests. It came alongside displacement and heavy utilization of police. Fences and enforcement are oppressive, even when the end result is a hotel room. One of these cornerstones is the principle of person-first language, which means that I've skipped ahead. So it's really important when we talk about person-first language, that we're always being mindful of what the impact of our words are on other people. And it might not seem like a big deal to others, but it really is when we're talking about and with people who use substances or who are marginalized. We just wrote a letter to the Alberta government asking for people, asking for the government and asking for the Minister of Health to consider safe supply as we have here in British Columbia. I do some side work with an organization called Change the Face of Addiction and help them with their social media and with some of their messaging and letter writing. And we actually received a response, a written response from the Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions uh, via an op-ed that he wrote for the Edmonton Sun. And in that article, he consistently called people addicts, users. He said to people that we're not going to do this unethical practice Uh, on the backs of taxpayer money, so he weaponized a service and framed it as something that would be costly to people. That's one example of how language can dramatically shift the way that we look at people and the way that we move forward in developing new policies and programs. Trust me, we will definitely respond to that article. I also want to talk a little bit about a more local case study. When we talk about um, institutional oppression, and varying approaches to public health emergencies. I put this together last night because I had a look at what the overdose statistics were for April. And as I said, those numbers have just been released, and it shows that in April of 2020, we had 117 deaths related to opioid overdose in our province. Last month, we, we had 113. This is the first time in two years that we've had back-to-back months with over 100 deaths related to opioid overdose. And it also shows that things are dramatically trending upwards. So let's look at this and let's consider this a case study when it comes to approaches to public health crises. So I give to you today a tale of two crises, how efforts to respond to both public health crises in BC differ and the outcomes related to those efforts. With COVID-19, we get minimum weekly reporting and evaluation made available to the public. We get weekly check ins. We make, we make sure that there's a, an app, there's a dashboard, there's st- so many stats that we don't even know what to do with it. When it comes to overdose, it takes a month for the stats to come in, and they're always a month late. So by the time something has happened, like now, we're just finding out know, what happened in April, we are on check day of May. How do we plan? How do we prepare? What about the messaging, the narratives that are reinforced by public health and political leaders? With COVID-19, we consistently see the rehashing of we're all in this together. We have to do our part. But with overdose, we've seen from our public health officials and from our politicians that overdose has basically become normalized. But this is just a thing that happens. I've actually heard elected officials say, well, overdoses happen in parks or they happen in hotels, but they happen. And when we have that kind of attitude towards people, then we realize that we're no longer pushing to innovate. We're no longer pushing to support, but we're just resting on what we have. And we're assuming that people are just going to die and that we need to be okay with that. What about investment? When it comes to COVID-19, the province spent 5 billion in the first two months in order to support people to stay at home, in order to direct healthcare services in overdose. We saw 322 million over three years, which equates to 9 million in the last two months. And what has been the end result of that? Well, in 2020, we've had 161 COVID related deaths. And in 2020, we've had 377 overdose deaths and they continue to spike yet again. This tells us right here, right now, that when we don't apply a sense of urgency, when we don't apply harm reduction, when we don't push for change, people do die.
0: Corey, can you just clarify, um, when you say related to opioid overdose, overdose, does this mean the cause of death is an overdose? Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's good, thanks.
1: Quite often they say um, an an overdose death is related to opioids because there may be other substances in a person's system. Um, So we, you know, and there's a variance of opioids that are out there. The primary substance that's causing people to die are the illicit fentanyl and analogs of fentanyl and benzodiazepines that are on the street. Um, And so there is differentiations between opioid related overdose death, fentanyl related overdose death. Um, and so that's why we that's why we use that terminology.
0: Okay, that's great. Thank you.
1: So what follows are some general guidelines when working and communicating with people who are marginalized, and and language is huge. We as a healthcare society, as a social service society, we tend to meet people where we are. Um, so we expect them to come to us, and quite often that doesn't really work for people. So it's important that we try our best to meet people where they're at. When we were implementing safe supply in parks, you know, we got people onto safe supply, but then we realized that people weren't staying on it. They weren't continuing to access their medications. And that's because we were getting them onto safe supply. But during a pandemic, we were asking them to travel a couple of kilometers to their pharmacy in order to access it. And that wasn't something that was feasible to them. So we really had to problem solve. And we arranged for a pharmacy to take over all of the prescriptions for the people in the park. And then they started delivering to people's tents every single day. And that's just one thing when we say, like, we really actually literally need to meet people where they're at. We need to make sure that we're educating ourselves and the people around us. We need to make sure that we're acknowledging the harmful effects of stigma. And that is one of the greatest barriers experienced by people who are made vulnerable. We also need to acknowledge that stigma arises from fear of the unknown which is a product of misconception and misinformation. We need to always be the available adult and model our behaviors for people around us, for our coworkers, for parents. And we need to make sure that we familiarize ourselves with community resources. One of the biggest pitfalls in proper application of harm reduction is this phenomenon called blind referrals, where we work with someone and we say, oh yeah, no problem. Just go here, and we hand them a card. In those very instances, what we've actually done is guaranteed that that likely will not get followed through on. And so it means walking alongside people. It means finding out what are the barriers to that individual accessing those services. It means providing an introduction to someone and having a phone call so that you can bridge the trust over to the next service provider. We need to make sure that we initiate conversations about safety planning. For the entire last week, I've been talking to people. Are you using the overdose prevention site? No, how come? Well, because I'm using in the hotel room and I feel safe in there. What are we going to do on check week? What can I do in order to support you? Can I check on you? Would you call me if you're going to use and then someone can be there while you use and then we can leave if everything's okay? And it's about creating these individualized plans of care that really are framed around what is important to the person that we're trying to support. It's also important to debunk myths. Um, And another core tenement of harm reduction is combating misinformation. There are so many myths and misconceptions that generate so many harms. Some of those include the myths that originally permeated around OxyContin, one of the main things that got us into this overdose crisis. At one point in time, the drug manufacturer for OxyContin realized that their prescription drug was the most commonly associated with a uh, with, with illicit drug use and they didn't like that. And so they worked with some researchers to change the formulary of their drug. They turned it into oxyneal and they changed it into a drug that if you tried to crush it up and cook it to inject, it would turn into a gel. It was chemically incapable of injecting in their eyes. And that's what a bunch of people way up at the top who make way too much money decided was the best way to deal with addiction. Did that actually stop? If you take away someone's drug of choice, do they stop using? No, in reality, what we saw is first, the rise of heroin returning to our streets, but heroin doesn't really exist anymore in mass quantities, or is it easy to get into our country? And so to replace that supply and demand need, we saw the rise of illicit fentanyl. And the illicit fentanyl that came in was so much more potent and so much more toxic, and it was originally being marketed as Oxycontin, people's old drug of choice, that it created so many harms. Nowadays, fentanyl is the primary drug on the street. When I talk to people at the overdose prevention site, we offer drug testing, we offer the test sticks that can tell you if there's fentanyl in it. And a lot of times people tell me, Yeah, what am I gonna do if I find out there's fentanyl in it? Fentanyl's in everything. And most drug teching shows that the majority of street opioids of street down is actually fentanyl. And very few samples contain any heroin at all. So there we see how a misconception about addiction and treatment could actually create so many harms for people. We've also heard myths and misconceptions about naloxone parties, the belief that people will take naloxone kits and they'll use more than they usually would and they'll overdose because what the heck, I have a naloxone kit here. That kind of rhetoric has actually hampered distribution, and ease of accessibility for naloxone because people have been hesitant to buy into those initiatives. But the reality is any of you who've responded to an overdose know that the person you've revived did not want that experience. They did not want to overdose, they did not want to be injected with naloxone, and they did not want to be put into significant and severe withdrawal because of the action of naloxone. The last myth and misconception worthy of talking about today is about fentanyl exposure risk. And this infographic here comes from a really awesome doctor and toxicologist from the United States. His name is Dr. Ryan Marino, and it covers the three main myths about fentanyl. The first myth is that fentanyl can be absorbed through the skin by touching it. But the reality is that fentanyl cannot be absorbed through the skin. It would take massive amounts over a significant period of time. If that were the case, people who have been working at supervised consumption services and the overdose prevention sites would have been overdosing every single day just by being around it and cleaning booths and going into inhalation booths. But that doesn't happen. The next myth is that fentanyl powder can get into the air and it can be inhaled. There's this belief that if you open the door and the gust from the door will bring the fentanyl up into the air, that you'll breathe it in and overdose and die. But this would only be an issue if there was extreme air movement and the powdered opioids had to be aerosolized, which is very rare and very uncommon. The last myth is that new potent opioids are even more dangerous for first responders. But all of those analogs, carfentanil, remifentanil, sufentanil, they all act and behave the same way as fentanyl. And so they cannot be acquired. They cannot be transmitted through passive exposure. The harms from some of these myths and misconceptions have been profound. We've seen countless stories of police officers treated for overdose after touching fentanyl. And it's caused people to push back on harm reduction services. It's caused people to treat people who use drugs as pariahs, that if I go too close to them, I'm going to accidentally uh, overdose just by proximity. But it's not true. And if you follow up with all of those news articles, there's never a retraction and there's never a follow up that says the officer's blood was was confirmed to contain fentanyl because it doesn't actually happen. In fact, the symptoms that they describe in those stories, when police officers start to feel lightheaded and their heart rate goes up and their breathing goes up and they get numbness and tingling in their fingertips and toes. Does anyone know what that sounds like? Sarah, can you tell me what the symptoms of that are?
0: It sounds like a panic attack.
1: It sure is. It is a panic attack. And then they inject themselves with naloxone, which is otherwise harmless, and they feel better. And so they correlate the feelings I had with the feelings I had after I injected with naloxone as it must have been an overdose. But none of those stories have ever been confirmed. They have never been verified that it actually happened. It's the same as the myths about cannabis-laced fentanyl or fentanyl-laced cannabis. That's not how fentanyl works. It cannot be put into a spray bottle and sprayed onto some cannabis buds. Moreover, nobody would do that. No drug dealer wants to contaminate their weed with fentanyl because they don't get good business when they kill their customers. And so it's really important to debunk those myths because it's part of the culture of war on drugs. It's part of the culture that we need to continue to eradicate these horrible things that happen to people when in reality, we need to look at things differently. So what does the future of harm reduction look like? Well, some would like to think that we can only move forward from here, but it's really important to know that we can't make those assumptions. We cannot assume the ground that's been covered might not be taken away. I'll go back to this example again. In Alberta, we had years of progress about four where we implemented supervised consumption services where we had a massive upscaling and take home naloxone where opioid agonist therapy was was made more easily accessible and we thought that we were making progress. And then very quickly, those things were taken away from us. A review was pulled on consumption sites and misinformed information was used to downplay the positive impacts of these services. Some sites lost their funding, Some people had their services canceled. Now we're seeing the IO programs, the injectable opioid agonist therapy programs under threat of defunding. You cannot assume that the progress you've made is something that is going to last forever. And so we need to continue to safeguard the progress we've made while continuing to push for more. One of the future steps and one of the great things that's happened here in BC is that we've seen the introduction of safe supply. And for those of you who are unaware, safe supply is um, a a regulated and unadulterated alternative to the street drugs that people are taking. It is prescribed by a physician at this point in time, and it is meant to provide a safer alternative to what people are taking to the illicit, contaminated market that is killing so many people. While working in the homeless encampments, I spent a lot of time connecting with people who were working in drug checking. And I was really keen to find out what was on the street and what was causing this massive surge in overdoses. What we found was really astonishing. We had believed pre-pandemic that there would be less fentanyl available because of border closures. So we might see more benzos being thrown into the mix, more things like alprazolam or Xanax um, or or midazolam. Um, But in reality, what we saw was that there was a rise in fentanyl concentration and a rise in benzo being mixed in with people's drugs. There was one sample that was found to contain 20% fentanyl and a drug called xylazine, which is an animal sedative that is toxic to humans. That 20% is four times more potent than the pre-pandemic concentration of fentanyl. Pre-pandemic, we would see around 5% fentanyl in a drug. And so this really threw us off, but it really told us that, we need to push for a safe supply. So I created this handout here uh, and everyone can have access to it in the handout section and it outlines the benefits of safe supply and this really is to generate some talking points. When you are talking with people, when you're communicating with prescribers and maybe there's some reluctancy or some hesitancy to prescribe safe supply to people, talk to them about their reason for doing it. Ask them what their trepidations are, what are their hangouts? And then use these nine reasons to support Safe Supply in order to help change the dialogue about this new form of harm reduction that's available. Safe Supply is known to reduce overdose. It's known to reduce police intervention, which is a nice way of saying decreasing crime. But I never try to frame substance use as a criminal behavior because it's only criminal because we choose as a society for it to be. It creates more balance in people's lives. We had someone come to the overdose prevention site just to talk to us yesterday. And they looked so good and they looked so healthy. And he looked at us and he said, I just realized that I haven't injected any down today at all. And it just blew his mind because every day leading up to that, his morning started off with the need to find his next hit, his next dose. But not today. He felt safe. He felt supported. He didn't have to hustle in order to get his stuff, he didn't have to pick bottles. He just felt supported and that allowed him to have some really great positive interactions with service providers. And this is some of the benefits that we don't get to quantify. These are some of the benefits that we don't get to see on paper because they're intangible, but they're so important. Safe supply also reduces the risk for COVID-19 when people don't have to go out and have multiple interactions to get their money and multiple interactions to get their drugs. Well, there's less possible disease transmission. Safe supply is also cost-effective because it decreases overdose, police intervention, incarceration, and disease transmission. It also fosters connections to care. When we build trust with people, when we genuinely address the needs that are important to them, they're more willing to talk about things that are important to them. They're more willing to talk about other things that can help support their care. There's less stigma because if we as a society acknowledge that the war on drugs and criminalization fosters stigma, then safe supply is the next natural step to reducing that stigma. People experience less withdrawal, so they're less dope sick, they're less uncomfortable, which prevents them from taking part in other risk-taking behavior in order to meet the needs of resolving that withdrawal. And safe supply is a gateway to change. If safe supply is the right approach, then the only next natural step is decriminalization. If we're acknowledging that people use drugs and they need support in doing that, then the last thing we should be doing is putting them in cuffs and locking them behind bars. So we've come to the conclusion of this presentation and I really wanted to make sure that I had a lot of time for questions today as I'm sure you all may. Um, But I also want to acknowledge first that this is very heavy content and it often feels really bleak when we talk about it, especially in these very challenging times. We need each and every one of you. So please ask yourselves, what am I doing to preserve my mental health? What am I doing to preserve my resiliency? How am I striving to save some piece of myself that's outside of this world? Can I right now? And if not, is that okay? These are really important questions and they're not things that you can answer just in a, in a one hour webinar, but the things to take home with you because we are very far from out of this crisis. When COVID leaves, we will still be in an opioid poisoning crisis. When COVID leaves, we will still be dealing with poverty and the institutional oppressors that continue to harm people. We need you all and we appreciate you all. So thank you so much for being here today. And I'm gonna open the floor back up to Sarah and, and be available to answer any questions that you may have.
0: Corey, do you feel good about being on video today?
1: Sure. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to my garage.
0: Um, I'll come on too so that you're not alone. Next. <laughs> um Just as we wait for some questions to come in, actually, someone had a question about the uh, scientific references and research around how fentanyl affects. Uh, people and that myth-busting slide you had. Um, do you have any further references on that? Uh, they were, I think, they were curious about the reports of police officers, and you had mentioned that um, there's no evidence that they had fentanyl in their system, but they were looking for more on that. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's the actual. So if you're if you're looking for the evidence, it's the actual chemical composition of the drug. And it's not a drug that is transdermal. It's not a drug that can be passively absorbed through the skin. There's even YouTube videos in overdose prevention sites of people holding powdered fentanyl in their hands with a nurse next to them, taking their vital signs and counting how long it would take to elicit an overdose and nothing happens to them. The problem when it comes to challenging some of that narrative is that people get really defensive when we talk about those pseudo- events that happened where people claim that they were exposed to fentanyl and had an overdose. Um, and the reality is is that no newspaper is going back and saying, hey, we were wrong about this. Here's a retraction on the last article. And so you really have to actually do your critical thinking and, and find out like why wasn't there a follow-up on this story? Right? Like why was there so much fanfare and then it was immediately dropped. And, and there is a lot of great evidence out there by that physician, Dr. Ryan Marino, who is a, toxicolo- who is a medical toxicologist, um, and he founded the entire WTF, What the Fentanyl uh, Mythbusters. And so if you're on social media, I would encourage you to follow him um, because they do produce studies and they do, um, they do make those available for people to see.
0: Oh, that's helpful. Thank you. I, I'm smiling because uh, we do a lot of webinars around COVID together. And every time I'm on video, I have the urge to touch my face when I'm talking to you. <laughs> Stop touching your face. <laughs> not a good thing. Um, okay. So there's a question here about the LifeGuard app. Did you want to talk a little bit about apps that are sort of purported to help with um, harm reduction and how that works? How you've been seeing Yeah. That?
1: I mean, I, I think they're great. I think that they're Again, uh, one piece of of the puzzle. And when it comes to supporting people who are at risk of overdose, it's about having a full menu, a buffet of options available for people to engage in them. Some people will definitely use the Lifeguard app. And when we think about the fact that in British Columbia, a huge percentage of people who die from overdose actually have homes and don't access consumption services, Mm -hmm. these apps are fantastic for them. Because they're the ones who aren't going to go to a consumption site because they don't want to see their neighbor going there. They're the ones who aren't going to have a worker drop off on naloxone kit because they don't want to be outed in their community. That's the power of stigma and shame that exists. So with the lifeguard, that's fantastic. When it comes to talking about people who are experiencing homelessness, people who are um, at tremendous risk, who are disproportionately impacted by overdose, it becomes a little bit more challenging. Because first and foremost, you need a phone and an Internet connection. Uh, in order to do that. And there have been some services that I've worked in that I've collaborated in in the last few uh, months where we've actually provided phones for people and we've loaded that app on and it's been pretty effective. Um, So again, I would say that they're a great resource, that they're a great piece of the continuum of care, uh, but it is not the uh, quote unquote only thing that's going to get us out of this situation. It's just another layer of protection And when you think about harm reduction and all of the services that exist within harm reduction, think of them as layers of armor that all throughout our work as we traverse through life, we need to make sure that we have all of these different layers of armor because we never know where we're gonna end up. Um, And the Lifeguard app, and there's a couple others that I'm working with, um, really exciting, I've just been pulled into this. Um, There is a new virtual proposal Uh, for safe supply in order to meet the needs of people who are in rural and remote communities so they can connect with a physician who's agreeable to prescribe it instead of having to go to their one local doctor who might say no based on ideological reasons. So we definitely need to mobilize technology in order to get innovative and creative in solving problems. Um, And I think that the Lifeguard app is just another piece of that.
0: Yeah, and there's a good point brought up here that it only works if you're in a Wi-Fi area, apparently. Yeah, Um,
1: which is great for the hotels that we got people into because everybody has Wi-Fi access in their hotels. Um, But when you start to think about folks that are in Beacon Hill Park, folks that are in Crab Park, folks that are in, you know, really, really distant and remote parks in some of the other parts of BC, it's not yet a viable option for them. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Um, So there's a question here, and this is a great question because I think... This comes up in every kind of frontline work, and we talk about meeting people where they're at, but this question is around someone in this person's community that is really hard to deal with, and the services that are trying to help her are running out of ways to help. There are some people like myself, this person is saying, that are willing to step up, but what would you suggest that their team does to help this person? So we all know in our frontline work people that um, just seem to be more complicated in, in terms of how they access services or how we can, can connect with them.
1: Yeah, and that's really challenging and it's not, uh, it's not a unique experience. And it's, it's quite often very common in more rural or less served areas that, that you see kind of, it takes a village to kind of approach to try and support people. Um, One of the things I always tell people, and this isn't a helpful answer for the for the person asking the question, but I'll get there, is is that when people act that way, um, when people are difficult to connect to services, when people are resistant uh, to services, um, it's very rarely about you. And I always tell the staff that I work with, like these behaviors, the way that you feel, this isn't about you. This is about you being a part of a bigger system that has traditionally pushed this person down. It's about intergenerational trauma that we may never understand. It's about the residual impacts of residential school survivorship. And and those aren't things that we can fix on a one-off glance. They require building relationships. They require building trust. um, And sometimes they require acknowledging when you are out of your depth. And so what I would say is, you know, I I can't speak specifically for this person and and this might not be possible. um, But to try and offer them an opportunity for a care conference and find out what exactly is it that you need and how can I support you? If they're not there, if that's not where they need to be at this point in time, um, then make sure that, you know, we're, we're applying a team approach. Make sure that you're coming up with a consistent plan of care. Um, and make sure that you're spending time with that person to try and not just push them along the continuum, um, but to just develop a relationship and develop trust um, so that when the time comes, they'll be willing to ask you for help. I get told to fuck off every single day um, <laughs> by, by people and and some folks I'm sitting there, you know, we had we had one person in in our park and. Um, they just didn't want to connect with anyone and they were really resistant and they didn't want to talk to anyone um, and we were really worried about them and they got into a hotel and the next day they overdosed and died in the hotel because they didn't have access to those services and it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. and it's not okay that this kind of things happens to people but we need to continue to do everything we can to try and bridge that trust and come from a lens of reciprocity and, and just be there with people um, so that there there is the hope that they will want to talk to you when they need you.
0: Yeah, and this person is saying that's a great answer. Thank you. You know, I'm going to put myself, I did this last week in a much more emotional way, but I'm just going to put myself in the shoes of someone who is experiencing the concepts of harm reduction on the on the depth, the level of depth that you provided us with today for the first time. So... It's incredible to me that I've been working in um, nonprofit frontline homelessness work for over 15 years and even in my personal life and my ethics, it's all about meeting people where they're at. Um, however, there were definitely moments in the presentation where I felt your presentation and the facts that you were telling me were rubbing up against internalized prejudice and bias that I didn't even know I had. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that because I really like the way that you talked about this being a personal uh, ethic that you can cultivate and that it starts with us. You know, it doesn't start necessarily with policy or programs. Those are very important and necessary. but but part of it is sort of our internal ethic around, recognizing our own biases towards this stuff because there was a point there where I got really nervous (laughs) and I thought why am I nervous right now like this makes sense to me in my head but something in my body and the way I've been raised you know I was raised in very conservative context um, I still found it hard to actually process the information so I just want to open it up for people and name that Um, You know, If you want to type into the question section about something that just rubbed you a little bit off, that's good. That's really good. I I just want to say to you, that's actually really good because it means what Corey is doing and his work and what we are here for today is to address the ways in which we might not be participating in helping people and we might not even be aware of that until we're confronted with information that kind of makes us uncomfortable.
1: Oh boy, one of the most disingenuous managers that I have ever worked with, back when I was brand new to nursing, before I got into harm reduction, I worked in the operating room and in acute care, and I was brand new and I was assigned this really difficult patient load and I didn't feel supported to do it. I was way over my head. And I talked to this manager and I said, like, I am uncomfortable with this. And they smirked at me and they said, well, feeling uncomfortable is a sign of growth. And when he said that to me, I was like, you bastard. (laughs) And then as the years have progressed, I realized that it was those discomforting moments that really pushed me out of my uh, scope, pushed me into places where I needed to entrust in my skills. And that's really is a sign of growth that's not how you should ever talk to someone who's experiencing those challenges but it really is a sign of growth and harm reduction is hard because it challenges so much of what we identify with Mm -hmm. you know you don't when you talk about obstetrics and you talk about or and you talk about acute care it's so much more dichotomous it's so much more black and white this is what we should do because of this but harm reduction challenges some of our core principles and some of the ways that we operate on a daily basis. And it's really easy as a natural reflex to push back on that. Nobody likes reflecting on those things. I, I even as I learn about things, I can see people push back on them when we talk about concepts like privilege, when we talk about colonization, when we talk about misogyny, when we talk about all of those pieces, it really gets people's backs up. You see a lot of Chad and Karen start to show up and say, I'm not like that. Not all men, not all white people. And it's important to try and put that thought away and realize, once again, this isn't necessarily about you. And it's not a bad thing to be wrong I spend my entire career now working alongside people with lived and living experience. And as a person who is not a peer, I don't identify as a person with lived and living experience. I have things that I've experienced, but I don't identify as experiencing the same things that they have. I am constantly told that I'm wrong or that something that I said, I shouldn't have said or that I've offended somebody or something like that. And then you can go one of two directions. You can say, no way. I'm right. I didn't mean it that way. You're being sensitive. Or you can sit back and go, why am I uncomfortable with this? Was what the person said true? And if it's not true in my mind, where's the discrepancy? And trying to, harm reduction is about operating under a sense of humility and being okay with being wrong a lot and being adaptable enough that you can change based on when you are wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, just reading some of the comments here. Some good stuff coming up. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It makes me think about a comment we had last week about someone just expressing their discomfort with the fact, the concept that the government is giving people money to buy drugs. You know, like that's a really basic pushback. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting because when I say that out loud, it sounds silly. But I also have that bias. You know, I read and I read something yesterday where it was, um, you know, questioning yourself and saying, am I, am I deciding not to give um, someone who's begging on the street money because I have um, concerns about how they're going to spend it? Right. And I just wonder if you want to talk a little bit about that. I mean, I know that's kind of more basic and we've kind of gotten a little bit more complex here, but I do think um, it's important to address these things.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say um, so. First and foremost, uh, when it comes to giving giving people money to buy drugs, I would need to ask for a little bit more clarification because you're talking about safe supply. It's a prescribed medication that's mm-hmm. covered under um, you know we we pay for people to buy all of their medications. That's yeah. what universal health care means in Canada. Uh, and so if you're framing that as Um, We're giving people money to buy drugs. Well, the government right now is giving everybody money to buy drugs. You don't think that everybody who's on isolation, who's on CERB, uh, isn't hitting up the liquor store way, way more often than they used to. Then you're not paying attention to what's going on in your Zoom meetings because everybody's got a glass of wine hidden around the corner of their screen. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is a drug. And so when we say those types of things, we're creating that hierarchy again where some drugs and some behaviors and some people are on a different playing field than the rest of us. We don't question where everybody else puts their money. Um, And so uh, to me, it's it's really something that you have to spend more time with people and see what they're experiencing in order to really make that kind of judgment. And I used to see it all the time when I worked as a street nurse, people panhandling and, and people saying like, well, you're just gonna spend it on booze anyways. So what? if they're going to spend it on booze, then that means they're not going to acquire their money some other way to spend it on booze. That means they're not gonna go through an alcoholic withdrawal. That means they're not gonna have a seizure and go into delirium tremens, or it means they're not gonna steal a bottle of hand sanitizer and drink it because they're unable to meet their withdrawal needs. People use drugs and and we need to escape the fact that there are some drugs that are just untenable for our society.
0: Mm. Thank you. Um, it's interesting this, this came up last week as well, but there's a tension between abstinence and 12 step programs and some people's recovery journeys, uh, and some of the concepts in harm reduction. So, and you know, in this particular comment, you know, there are people that we work with who are very, who have lived in lived experience of using, um, and, um, you know, have gone on their own recovery journey. But their um, stance is that abstinence and lack of temptation is the only way to maintain their recovery. And that's very real for them. So do you want to talk a little bit about how those two things interact?
1: Yeah, that's a bit of a, a Pandora's box question right at the end <laughs> always, of the webinar. I always give
0: you the <laughs> I talk about
1: this And I I tiptoe and around this and I talk about this on a very regular basis Um, And that's because quite often recovery has been um, the term recovery has been weaponized in some sense for people who use drugs still. Um, And it's being said that, you know, recovery equals abstinence. And I spend a lot of time working with people who are both in recovery, who are, in, who are abstinent, and who are continuing to use their drugs. And when we try to come to a mutual definition of recovery, what we get to is that it's individualized. Mm-hmm. It's based on what you need and what you want. And so for some people, abstinence is the end goal. And in harm reduction, we don't scoff at people who want to be abstinent. We don't push them away from that and tell them to go inject. As soon as someone says they want to stop, as soon as someone says that they want access to support so that they can be abstinent we do everything we can in order to support that individual and we make it about their priorities the only difference is that we're not pushing it on people we're not telling them this is the only way you're going to be a success in life and that's the really important demarcation is that uh you know some people continue to use drugs throughout the rest of their lives and they're okay That doesn't mean that they're a failure. That doesn't mean that they're going to die. It just means that they've taken a different path in the walk of of recovery. And recovery is really more about returning to a state of functionality, returning to a state of health and well-being and being connected to your supports and being able to enjoy and thrive in your life. And if you can live under that philosophy, then abstinence might be your choice or more safe and functional drug use might be your choice. But whatever that is, we're going to support you to get there. Um, you know, we we do this a lot with folks and, and there are times when people who are in their abstinence, they're really resistive to harm reduction. They're really resistant to harm reduction. And part of that is because their beliefs and the way that they operate and the way that they maintain their abstinence is the belief that if they're gonna use again, even just once, that it will equal relapse and it could mean very detrimental things to their lives. And if that's what's you know working to keep themselves safe then that's okay. It should just never be impressed on other people because when we put people into corners, when we put people into boxes, that's when they isolate, that's when they hide, and that's when overdose is a tremendous risk.
0: Yeah, I think you really honed in on that. And I spoke a little bit about um, about this last week uh, that – the risk of overdose is much higher when shame and isolation come into it and that is one of the key concepts between behind harm reduction and actually what I hear coming out in this webinar with you especially is we've talked a lot about building those personal relationships and you know harm reduction is as much about being a safe person as it is about um, creating safety for people so there's a sense in which, and I know, I know from experience of loss, um, I have a lot of regrets about not being a safe person. And that has led to serious harm for others who I love. And so I think it's important here to highlight that, you know, every, actually most of the answers you've even given are around meeting people where they're at, finding out what they want to do for their recovery and finding out what their priorities are. And I want to say that's really hard work. You know, that means it's not the silver bullet that we debunked as problematic. It means it's not there's one harm reduction strategy that's going to, you just plug and play for your community or for your organization, and it's going to fit everybody. Um, This is the heavy lifting of the work that we do. It really is, is the tailored connection and relationship building with people to be safe for them and to also create safety.
1: There's a really great quote um, from Maya Savalovitz and she is the author of unbroken brain um, about treating addiction and some of the myths and misconceptions. And um, the, the quote is harm reduction is the opposite of tough love. It is the unconditional kindness, And it imbues what looks to outsiders as irredeemable ugliness with startling moments of transcendent beauty. Mm. And really, that's what it's all about. It's just walking alongside people, accepting them for who they are and imposing no judgments or preconceived notions on what they need to do and finding out what's important to them and helping them get there.
0: Yeah. And I, I also want to say as well, this kind of comes back to some of the other training that is really important in concert with this because uh, Corey and I always joke about boundaries um, and how we work too much. But what it's, are those? it's important here when we talk about harm reduction to add the piece of training around your workplace boundaries. Um, you kind of touched on it in the sense that, you know, maybe part of your boundaries in dealing with people and harm reduction is recognizing you might not be the best person to help.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll tell a little story. But when I first started in harm reduction, as a street nurse in the downtown core of Edmonton, I went way over my head. I was a student who got hired out of a student role to take over this bloodborne pathogens program, and it was a huge deal to me. There was a huge caseload of people who were homeless, who were living with HIV, had difficulties accessing their medications, were at significant risk. And part of my job was to find them and to help them get to appointments. And it was very stressful for me. It was also probably the best, single greatest learning experience I've had in nursing, but I remember one, uh, my first winter, and I got really sick. There was um, a lot of respiratory bugs that were passing around the shelters, and I got something. I don't know if it was a pneumonia, but it was so bad that I couldn't walk upstairs, and I was coughing my brains out. If this was COVID times, I would have been shunned tremendously for the children <laughs> at work, but this was before that time. And I was sitting at our office, which is in a loft, so I had to get up the stairs, and I was, sweating and trying to catch my breath and this nurse that I work with Tia she was like what are you doing (laughs) I was like what do you mean she's like why are you here and I was like my my clients they need they need the help they need the support like I need to be there with them they're they're relying on me and she said you know what Corey this is gonna sound horrible but there's something to be said about taking yourself too seriously I was like, what do you mean? She said, if you believe that you are the only thing that's keeping your clients from life or death, then you are doing your job wrong. Mm -hmm. Everybody who's on your client load was out there in the community before you started working. And before this program started, they were out there in the community surviving and living. When you leave, if you leave, they will continue to be out there in the community and they will find ways to mobilize survival skills and to get through whatever they need to you are taking yourself too seriously. And I did not take that comment very well. <laughs> but then I reflected on it and I realized that it was 100% true. We have to know where our line is. Like there was a time when I was showing up early and staying late because I was really uncomfortable with the fact that I got to go home to a warm house and all the people I worked with were still out in the minus 40 temperature in Edmonton. Yeah. And it, it went to a breaking point. We lost someone really close to us to overdose, and I had to take time away from work. And during that time, I regrouped and I realized, you know what, Corey, you are taking yourself too seriously.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Corey. <laughs> like I, I think... said, I
1: operate <laughs> under a humility-based approach because I've been wrong many times, but it's okay because I've learned from each of those times.
0: Yeah, I, I really like all of everything you just said Um and I don't necessarily want to get away from the fact that so we've kind of moved into personal reflection territory, which is so crucial to this work. I also want to highlight to everybody that harm reduction has very concrete scientific um, protocols, procedures, research, and, and Corey has provided all of that as well. So, you know, whatever, uh, actually, I'm not even going to make it about sides. whatever part of the spectrum you land on, there's something for you here. Um, there are the evidence-based studies. There is the invitation to reflect. Um, There is the wrestling with your own ego and thinking about how you do your work in terms of boundaries. But there's also, um, you know, programs out there, people that are doing amazing work as groups and all of that kind of stuff as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, harm reduction is this excellent marriage of, Deep, robust data and evidence mixed with a values-based approach. It is Mm -hmm. ethics and evidence combined. And if you're looking for the evidence, it's not hard to find. There are decades of systematic reviews and highly robust articles and peer-reviewed studies out there that have quantified the many benefits of harm reduction. But some of it you have to see for yourself. Some of it you have to actually experience that connection. The biggest wins that I've had um, have been connecting with people and having them trust me. And you can't put that down on paper. In my first job, uh, and I'm going to I'm gonna quote Marlis Taylor here, who's an amazing advocate and nurse for harm reduction and innovated harm reduction. Uh, very early on in Alberta, she told me that my preceptorship, my clinical at Streetworks would not be judged based off of my ability to do clinical skills, even though I was a nurse in my clinical. She said halfway through this program, if you don't have at least 10 people coming into our site asking specifically for you, then we're going to have to have a conversation because harm reduction is about trust. Mm -hmm.
0: And there's some great um, support and comments here. You know, in the in this field, we are carers, like you said at the beginning, we do actually connect to and get into this work, not for the money, (laughs) not for the fame. Not for the great work life balance, right? Like, we're not not for the
1: illustrious garage office,
0: (laughs) right? We're not doing this work because we, uh, you know, are after those things. We're doing this work because we care, because we're sincere, because we are hopeful that actually, um, working on the front line, connecting with people, providing services actually does make a difference. Um, so I want to acknowledge that as well. Thank you for that comment. Well, we just got about three minutes here. Um, Corey. I always love putting you on the spot because you always come up with great (laughs) answers. You're always ready, (laughs) even when you don't feel ready. So tell me, you know, we're at the end of our two-part series. What would you say to people who are at this point? They've taken both trainings. What's something that they can take out back into the field with them today?
1: Yeah, you know, I would say it's that, that institutional reflection. Spend the next week. As you're working and consistently sit back and ask yourself, am I operating under a harm reduction philosophy? Are the things that we are doing here person first? Are we unintentionally creating some oppression and some harms in our process? And what can we do in order to resolve that? Do the research if you're skeptical. Do do the education. Continue to seek out more opportunities for education. I know when I first got into this, I was skeptical of most things. I remember... I'm going to tell another story. Yay! <laughs> I, I, re- I remember, um, you know, buying into harm reduction early because as a nurse, I was like, this is so cool. I'm going to do this. This is the thing that I want to do. I totally get it. And we were given uh, when we started our, our first clinical, we were given a values test. How comfortable would you be doing X? how comfortable would you be doing? Why? And some of the questions were, how comfortable would you be doing? Would you be handing out harm reduction supplies to a youth? And I was like, 10, I'm so comfortable. How comfortable would you be supporting someone who is pregnant and actively using substances? 10, I'm so comfortable. Don't even worry about me. And then it actually happened like really quickly. I was working in the needle exchange program. I was by myself and this kid came in and very sheepishly asked for some needles. And instead of being like, yeah, I'm so comfortable with this, I was like, oh my God, I need to call my manager. Is this okay? I don't know if this is okay. I don't know what I'm feeling right now. And so I picked up the phone to call my manager and the individual in question started to walk up the door. And I hung up my phone and I was like, whoa, 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 where are you going? And and they looked at me and they said, you're just like all the rest. You're going to tell me not to use drugs. You're going to tell me to do this. Uh, You're like, my My service providers and you're like my guardians who, you know, only make me do blah, blah, blah. And you're just like my doctor who tells me this is what I need to do and I'm not doing it. So I'm therefore wrong um, in, in not so many words. And I just stopped and I said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. What do you need? What's going on? And what happened is we ended up having a two-hour conversation. We connected them to service providers. We connected them to a doctor that they hadn't seen in a long time. We were able to get them HIV and hep C testing, which they hadn't had yet, even though they were using needles. And at the end, yes, I did provide harm reduction supplies to this individual. And it dawned on me what would have happened if I had said, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Would the person have stopped using? Would they have just gone, wow, I need to change my life and, and do something different? No, the reality is that they would have continued to use, but they would have probably done so in isolation. They would have done so by sharing uh, injection drug supplies, and it would have created so many more harms. Instead, we were able to build trust and connect this person to so many other services, and they ended up making a lot of great progress with their health. They didn't stop using, and that was okay, because right then and there, what they needed was support, and they needed someone to trust.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Um, I would really encourage all of you to connect with Corey. Here's his email. He's really happy to talk to you. He's happy to talk you through uh, whatever you want to know. He's got it all. He's got the evidence. He's got the stories. He's got the experience. Um, He's got the handouts, he's got the infographics. (laughs) So please do connect with him. And Corey, thank you so much. We're going to run this again, I think, um, probably in the fall. So if there are people that missed out or co-workers of yours or colleagues that would like to take this program, we're going to get it going again because I think it's been a really excellent addition to our training. And uh, like I said, there's lots of resources out there. This is part of the handout that's the PDF of the PowerPoint. So do uh, download that or ask for it and we'll send it to you. Um, I'm impressed that uh, we're only at one page of references today. (laughs) Um, But those are there for you as well if you want to dive deeper into this topic. And like Corey said, there's a lot to learn in the spirit of humility. All of these things you can find on our website. Um, You can sign up for upcoming training you can uh, check out our resources uh, under the coronavirus tab Uh, this will be uploaded as a recording video and it'll be on our podcast feed you can also check out harm reduction part one it's available right now on our website if you want to catch up on that as a podcast and as a video and um, thanks for being here with us today thank you for showing up thank you for asking the hard questions of yourself in your organizations, uh, of our governments. Um, thank you for continuing to be here in this challenging time. Uh, it's not easy work, but it's worthwhile. Hey, so take care everyone. Stay safe, stay calm and take a break today if you can. Bye. HSABC is a provincial, member-driven organization and our mandate is to strengthen and unify services across BC that are addressing the needs of those experiencing homelessness. Right now, so many of our members, as well as their friends, families, colleagues and clients are facing unprecedented challenges, as well as a total change to our daily lives. And we're here to help support you on the front lines, however we can. You keep showing up, even in the most intense and difficult of circumstances, for the most vulnerable. Thank you for all the work you do and for continuing to do it every day. Our website is hsa-bc.ca and you can find COVID-19 specific resources for frontline and shelter workers, including handouts, posters, webinar video, news and health authority updates, and much more. You can also email us at infohsa-bc.ca at or find us on Twitter at underscore HSABC. Stay calm, stay safe, stay strong.